Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's reading is from 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment for silent reflection. We center ourselves in this moment in God through intentionally connecting prayer to our breath. So on the inhale, we'll pray, gracious God, and on the exhale, we pray, lead us by your spirit. So let's take some time together to pray. Let's pray together. Gracious God, lead us by your spirit. As we enter this moment, some of us come joyful, hopeful, optimistic, enthusiastic. Some of us approach this moment fearful or just tired or anxious or angry or depressed, or addicted. We come to these scriptures believing and trusting and doubting and cynical. Often, many of these aspects operating simultaneously in our lives. Help us to see now that you know us in all our complexity, all our contradictions, all the ways we get it, and all the ways we don't get it. And your response is to give yourself to us in the sacrificial, self-giving love of Jesus Christ. And so we pray now that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed and this world would be renewed. We pray these things for our good and for your glory in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I have caught World Cup fever, which Stephen Colbert said some of the symptoms are uh, um, general anxiety and jitteriness, and an excitement over zero-zero ties. 
but World Cup fever, it starts to dominate my calendar. You know, can, I, can you meet at this time? I don't know. I have to see what games are on. I had a meeting with the executive director of North Park Main Street on Monday at noon during the, Engl- the Wales-U.S. game. And I thought about postponing it. With the ex- that, you just shouldn't do that. I didn't do it. I went to the meeting. Took one for the team. But it dominates the calendar. Calendars are important to us. Over Thanksgiving break, last night Joshua said, Mom, Dad, how many days are left of break? Well, it's pretty much a regular Saturday at this point. You're going to school on Monday. Okay, but after I go back to school, how many days until Christmas break? The school calendar matters. Calendars dominate our lives. We live by them. And today, we turn the page on the Christian calendar to Advent. In fact, in the Christian calendar, the wisdom of the Christian calendar, Advent is New Year's Day. So Happy New Year's to all of you. An early Happy New Year's and one that's right on time. You turn the page to Advent to the season of four weeks of anticipating the reality that God has become one of us so that we might become one with God. Or as John the Gospel writer put it, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. That light is the life of all people and dwells among us. And the wisdom of the church says one day a year is not long enough to consider that. We need four weeks to let it sink in, to massage it deeply into our psyches. And so today, we're waiting and we're watching. And we're starting a new series on waiting and watching with what the church would call spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are a lot like exercises that you could do to strength to be more strengthened. And so today we look at waiting and watching with scripture. And it's critical to every person in this room. It's essential for everybody, all friends who are joining online. And here's why. Because we all live by a grand story in our lives. Philosophers and sociologists call it the grand narrative of your life. Maybe the great story of your life has to do with sports. Maybe the great story of your life has to do with finance or the markets that rise and fall. Maybe the great story of your life has to do with politics or with being right. And these stories help us make sense of who we are, what's important in life, and where we're headed. Everybody has a grand narrative. The question is, are you aware of yours? Are you aware of how your grand story is operating and how it drives your life? Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew was recorded as saying, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built their house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who builds their house on sand. The rain comes down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." Do you have a foundation for your life that is strong enough, stable enough, coherent enough to hold you and to hold all things together even when it feels like the world is swirling? And today you are commended to the witness of Scripture. 
So let's dive into it. Let's ask, well, what is it, Scripture? What is it and also what isn't it? What is it? Why do you need it? And how do you access it? Okay, first, what is it, which is also what it isn't. First, what it isn't. The Bible, I've heard this before in churches. I hope, please hear me out if this offends you in any way. The church is not basic instructions before leaving earth. Okay, sometimes that's the acronym, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. It was not written as an instruction manual. It's not a textbook for science. It does not intend to tell you how many days in which the earth was created. It just wasn't. You can't force it to, to tell you the earth is only 6,000 years old or was created in six 24-hour periods. And it never tried to. Let me give you an example. First of all, the word yom, day, in Genesis 1, on the first day, on the first yom. Yom could mean a 24-hour period. Yom also means an epic or a long period of time. We even use this in English today when I could say, I haven't seen you in a day. Or if I haven't seen you for six months, I could say, I haven't seen you in a day. Right? So I'm not, I'm not trying to say, like, just hold on, take all of this at once. And some of you are like, thank you so much for saying that. Others of you are saying, I can't believe you're saying that right now. I get that. Hear me out. Genesis 1 and 2 don't try to force themselves into that situation. That's actually a more modern construct that comes after the Enlightenment where we're trying to force scientific principles onto a revelation book that was never meant to do that. So if you want to say, okay, fine, it was six 24-hour periods. Well, the, the sun and the moon weren't ev even brought into creation until several days into it. So it doesn't seem to have a problem with that. It's not a, it's not a textbook. It is story. It's the grand story. It intends to tell you the deepest realities about God, humanity, God working in creation to bring about salvation, shalom, restoration, and renewal. It follows the great arc of human history, of good creation, and the brokenness of the fall, and God setting out to do whatever it takes, including entering into the mess to redeem and renew everything, and then calling us to be a part of God's great plan of rescue. It's the big story in which all of our stories take place. Here's what it's not. It's not merely Bronze Age cosmology or fairy tales or mythological stories. It is many books compiled together. The word Bible, if you speak any Spanish or any of the Latin languages, Bible, biblioteca, library, it is a collection of many books compiled and written by many authors over many countries, over many centuries, speaking different languages with different worldviews in general, all pointing toward God's work in the world. There's a place in Luke chapter 24 where Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, is walking on the road to Jericho with some of the apostles who had given up. It's one of my favorite stories. But it says, and then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he began to interpret to them the things in all the scriptures that pointed to him. All scripture ultimately points toward Jesus. And you have to read it that way. Because if you start with, 
you can't eat shellfish or you will be an abomination in Leviticus. You will never get to the revelation of who Christ is. But if you start with who Christ is, then you go back into all these 612 rules and regulations and you have this other context for trying to figure those things out. The fancy word for that is hermeneutic. It really just means the lens through which you view something. The lens through which you view something. And these different authors over all this different time actually employ different genres of writing. So you can't read the Bible from beginning to the end as a flat text because it wasn't written that way. It, it starts with poetry, classic, beautiful Jewish, Hebraic poetry. The parallelism, the way it's structured, the punctuation at the end of every day, and God blessed it and said it was good, and God looked and said it was good, and then it comes to this crescendo after God creates humanity and God's image and likeness and says, and it was very good. That's poetry. Never meant to be written, as I said, as a science book. But then there's a lot of it that's what my friend calls historiography. I'll get to that in a moment. Just hold on to that. Historiography. There's wisdom literature, advice. There's prophecy, which prophecy oftentimes in Scripture, sometimes it's about the future. God will do this. Turn to God or this will happen. It's oftentimes calling the people of God back to relationship with God in the present tense. There's the Gospels, which Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, two of them are eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. Two of them are secondary accounts that interviewed all of the eyewitnesses over a long period of time and wrote what they learned. Either way, you have really close reportage to the action. It's unparalleled for something that happened 2,000 years ago. There's articles and books written on all of this. I'm just giving you an overview. It's God speaking to God's people in a language that they understood that was appropriate for their age and stage of development. I'll give you an example. And I will say this. There are parts of the Bible that trouble me and they should trouble you too. If you're reading about, and God told us to wipe these people out, you should do a full stop there and have an issue with that. But you have to read it through the lens of Jesus Christ and say, you put that on the scale and say, is this the character of God? Let me give you an example. There are parts of the Old Testament where, and God told us to go and smite them all. What's going on here? Furthermore, it says, and we did. Okay, I have an ethical problem with that. I have an ethical problem with that because my soul says it, my conscience says it, and because scripture says you shouldn't kill. And furthermore, there's archaeological digs that have taken place at these sites and revealed that they did not indeed wipe out every man, woman, child, and animal in that place. So, was the Bible telling them to do it and they did it and it's genocidal? Or was God telling them to do it and they didn't do it and science proves it through archaeology and so the Bible's unreliable and untrustworthy? Or is there another option? And this is where I bring back to historiography. This is where I bring you to the idea that God is speaking to God's people in a language they understand at the age and stage appropriate for their development. So when they say we wiped out every person, this is, this is not God beaming down an email from heaven. This is God working through people who spoke in a native language of that location, who used imagery according to their experiences and spoke in the vernacular of their people. And that was the way people spoke back then about great battles or great trials. And we see this today a little bit. If my son, I mean, I hope he does this. I don't think he ever will. My nine-year-old goes to school and goes, my dad is the strongest man in the universe. Is he lying? That's 
literally, yeah, he's lying. And, but, but is he telling the truth as he understands it in the moment? Yeah, he's saying my dad has an amazing amount of strength compared to him. Um, but you see how this starts to get into, it's not, it's, not try, it's telling the truth in a language that the people would understand at that time using images with which they were relatable. Which means that to be a Christian, or just to dip your toe into understanding scripture, means not that you check your brain at the door, you actually sophisticate your understanding of the world. It means you read it more closely, you wrestle more intentionally, you wrestle with difficult or confusing passages, and it's one of the gifts of the church, the community, where we do it together. Here's what it wasn't. It wasn't directly dictated. These people who wrote these scriptures were not God's typewriters. Like they, had, they beamed out of their body and God beamed in and their hands started moving. They weren't God's typewriters. They were people called, appointed by God, inspired. That word inspire, think about the word. God is, it's God breathed, inspire, inspiration. You, when, when you are respiring, when you're breathing, God breathed God's life into their lives. It's human and it's divine. Sound like somebody you know? And the readers themselves give evidence of their own personalities, their vocations, their struggles, their individual difficulties, and how it affected the way they saw and did things. But here's what it is. It's revelation. The invitation to follow Jesus, the invitation to read scripture and understand God, is an, an invitation to participate in revelation. A Christian is one who says, I'm not a Christian because I've figured out God. A Christian can say, I know God because God broke through to me. And we find God's revelation in God's written word and in God's living word, Jesus Christ. It reveals who God is and what it means to have abundant, rich life with God. And here's the thing, you can learn a lot about God without the Bible, but you will learn things in the scripture that you could never come to by your own resources. For example, you can go to the ocean at sunset and see the beauty of the sunset and say, whatever, whoever, the divine spark, whatever it is, is creative and beautiful. You can feel the power of a surging wave on your body or see it crash against a cliff and say, whatever's, whatever's generating all of this at the core is powerful. But creation, nature itself, can never tell you the character of God. It can't tell you how God feels about you. Until you read, I knitted you together in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I had already numbered your days. I pay such close attention to you that I know the number of hairs on your head, and none of them will fall without my knowledge. I will never leave you or forsake you. Only in scripture can you get that revelation. Images of God rejoicing over you as a parent over a child. Loving you. Stopping at nothing to pursue you. Now, why do you need it? I said we all live according to a grand story, a grand narrative. Your understanding of the story will drive your life. I'll give you an ancient example. One of the great ancient creation narratives out of Mesopotamia was called the Enuma Elish. And the story of where all this came from is recorded as a great cosmic battle between the gods Marduk and Tiamat. And 
Marduk killed Tiamat. No, no little ones in here listening? Friends at home, cover your kids' ears. Marduk killed Tiamat and spilled her entrails out. And out of all the blood and guts came the planets and the cosmos and the stars and everything else. So at the root of that narrative is violence. Where did we come from? Violence. And it gives birth to violent practices like Babylon, which advanced the empire through genocide. But in scripture you read, what's at the core of creation? Was a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who always existed in sacrificial, self-giving love, pouring love dynamically into one another throughout all eternity, and essentially saying, this is so good, we have to create something to pour it into more, to share it with us. What is at the heart of creation? is creative, self-giving, powerful, relational love. That's an entirely different place to come from. Now, maybe you're thinking, Matt, you know, thanks for explaining the Enuma Elish. I, I don't actually get the subscription to that newspaper. It's not my main, my main narrative. But you do have a narrative. It might be that your particular way of looking at ordering society, we call that politics, is the most important thing in your life. And so you have to be right, and you're going to crucify anybody who's wrong. That will drive all sorts of behaviors. Politics are important, believe me. I care about the way we order society. But when that becomes the only thing, then it becomes dehumanizing. What is the story that drives your life? Here's why you need it. Because it gives you wisdom that isn't normally accessible to you. And the dangerous part about this is not only is the wisdom not ordinarily accessible to you, you think it is. Mark Twain said the most dangerous things in the world ain't the things you don't know. It's the things you know that just ain't so. Have you ever made a decision that you said in the moment, I know best? Have you ever made a decision that seemed so right? And with some hindsight and some experience, you look back and you say, what, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Or we do this as a society. We say, we know best. We know now. They back then didn't know, but now we know. That's called chronological snobbery. Okay? And so we come in with more progressive views, with more knowledge, with more learning, with the newest trends of thinking, and we laugh at, we scoff at our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation and the way they thought about these things. But don't you realize that future generations are going to laugh at and scoff at the way you view things. The wisdom of the age rises and falls like the tides. Or as one theologian said, anything that is not eternal is eternally out of date. You need something to anchor you. A wisdom that goes beyond your own existential moment. Here's why else you need scripture. Because it actually brings freedom. Now, the modern person says, excuse me, isn't that the book that has the Ten Commandments in it? Uh, that doesn't sound like freedom to me. God's commands sound like a straitjacket. We believe true freedom is the lack of all restrictions. But common sense tells you otherwise. When Jordan and Brian and Chemo are playing music up here, when Matt's playing music, any of our musicians, if they were to say, you know, today is freedom in music day, I'm going to play any chord I want at any time. It's not freedom, that's discord. 
If you were to go up to an aquarium with a goldfish in it and say, that goldfish deserves to enjoy the same freedom I do. I'm going to liberate that fish from that tank and bring him out into my, into my room. You have a dead goldfish, not a free goldfish. So freedom is not the lack of all restraints. Freedom is submitting to the right restraints. Friends, you cannot know freedom until you learn to say no to some things in your life that deaden, not revive your soul. The problem is, how do you decide? So I'll give you an example. Our society will tell, you don't have to go far or watch more than four commercials to realize, our society will tell you to be promiscuous with your body, give it to whoever you want, and be greedy with your money, make as much as you can and keep it for yourself. And when you look at the net, like metadata of where that leads us as a society, we have the highest level of loneliness, disconnection, anxiety, and fear following the advice of our society. Scripture comes in and says, be stingy with your body. Only give it to someone with whom you've made a lifelong covenant and then give it generously. Be stingy with your body and be promiscuous with your money. Give it away generously, sacrificially, joyfully. And it leads to more connection, more joy, and more contentment. You need wisdom. Thirdly, you need perspective. Have you ever been, like, dri driving a road, maybe on the freeway, you know this road, and you got a, a traffic report that said, actually, uh, ahead, there's this accident, so you have to go this way, go that way, go this way, go that way, and you actually listened to it? You followed it? And sure enough, the way you would normally go that you know really well was jammed up and gridlocked, and the alternative detour they gave you actually got you to your destination faster. Because the helicopter, the traffic helicopter, can see behind you and before you. It has perspective. How do you decide when you look down at your own heart which desires and instincts to follow and which to temper? I mean, maybe we'd say, follow your heart. Yeah? Well, your heart's conflicted. What if you feel a conviction to tell the truth in an important situation at work or in a relationship, but you also feel like telling the truth will kill you or put your job at risk? What if you feel a conviction to give away your money generously, but you also have this instinct of self-preservation and fear? What do you do when your heart is conflicted? You need someone with perspective who knows your whole heart, who has knowledge of all the possibilities. And who has that kind of perspective? The God who breathed life into all creation breathes life into Scripture. The same mind that is running the universe expresses itself in Scripture. So how do you access it? Well, first of all, good news. You already are. Because we access it together every Sunday. You hear a lot of Scripture on Sunday. Not just the ones we unpack through the sermon, but this whole service has Scripture from beginning to end. It's a bath of Scripture. We do that on purpose. But that's just one meal a week. You cannot survive on one meal a week. In our community group, we unpack and apply scripture. We ask our questions together. Our Wednesday midweek prayer gathering usually begins with a focusing scripture. 
So there's this communal element to it. But there has to be, has to be, if you really want to grow and go deeper, an individual element to it where you take responsibility. So I invite you now, if, if you don't have a regular practice of being exposed to Scripture, make a decision today. And I'll give you some suggestions. In fact, if you start now, you could say, I'm just going to do it through Advent. And then when you get to Christmas, say, I'll just do it till the New Year. And you're already like 30 days into a great New Year's resolution. We're getting way ahead here. So here are a couple ideas. First, get a Bible if you don't have one. You can take, write this down or you can go back and watch the service. Very simply, I would recommend the translation of the NIV or the um, NRSV. But do what suits you. You also have a Bible in your pocket if you have a smartphone. Go to Bible Gateway, and they have all the scriptures there. One of my favorites, I need something simple, or else I'm not going to do it. I'll, like, develop something complex and go wholeheartedly for about six days and then just fall off the wagon. So I need something simple. My Bible, I put a sticky note in Genesis 1, a sticky note in Psalm 1, and a sticky note in the first gospel, Matthew. And every day. Just read a chapter of each and move the sticky notes as you go. That works for me too because if I miss a day, I don't feel all bad about myself. I just pick up where I left off. But if you do that, by the time we get to Christmas, you will have read the Gospel of Matthew in its entirety. You'll be 28 Psalms into. You'll be through the story of Abraham. You'll be in through you know, Noah and Abraham. You'll be in, into all of that and you're bathing yourself in the story. That's one. Get a Bible, read it regularly. That's how I do it. And by the way, I just need to let you in on this dirty little secret of being a pastor. It is a, um, it's an occupational hazard. I get paid to read the Bible. It's what I do for a living. It's dangerous that I only read the Bible to prepare sermons, prepare Bible studies, and counsel people. And so what has helped me, if you're in ministry of any sort, is you always want to have something going with God that has nothing to do with your external output. Just just spending time with God for the sake of spending time with God. So this is what's been helpful for me. I have plenty of st other stuff that I'm studying as I go along. Other ideas. Get a reading guide or a commentary. I like uh, Tom Wright's series. It's the For Everyone series. You can get it on Amazon. And it, it's just name the book. This is the Paul For Everyone series at several of his letters. Matthew For Everyone. Mark For Everyone. Luke For Everyone. We have several copies of Mark For Everyone. You're welcome to. Then you have kind of a reading companion as you go along. There's an app on my phone that I use called Pray As You Go. It's about 12 minutes long every day. It's a recording, comes out of England, and it has a scripture and some reflection questions and some music. It's one of the things I do first in the morning. So get a Bible, commentary, Pray As You Go app. Find a good devotional. I'd be happy to recommend a few to you. I'd have to look them up on my phone. But at, like they have Advent devotionals where you just do this journey of 28 days of Advent, but it kickstarts being exposed to Scripture. And as you do, this is what Tom Wright puts in his book. Through our reading and pondering, it works this knowledge of God deep into our consciousness and even subconsciousness by story, poetry, symbol, history, theology, and exhortation. And it will train you in righteousness, which is a combination of goodness and justice, the behavior that God longs to see in all his children. The aim is not to squash people into a strange, unnatural shape by trying to order their lives according to the Bible. 
but to help people who belong to God to become complete, richly human beings, reflecting God's image in all its many-sided splendor. Read it actively with a notebook next to you or with the notes app on your phone open for the things that stand out to you where, you where you feel like God is calling you into something or the problems or the questions that you ask and then do it as partnership with others. Finally, I'd say, let it spur you to action. That scripture that we heard today, what's the point of it? So that you may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scriptures are not meant merely to educate you, although they are. They're not merely meant to awaken you, although they will. They are meant to equip you to go out to be a part of God's plan of renewal wherever we go. Let it spur you to action as partnership with a gracious God who calls you God's own, who wants to be known by you, and thus reveals God's self to you. I'll leave you with this image. One of my highlights of this last week was that Florence came down with me to La Jolla Cove to, when I swam early in the morning, sunrise. I just loved sharing that with her. She didn't get in the water. It was 59 degrees that morning in the water. But she was there. And a cursory glance, just a quick glance of the water will reveal the beauty of the water and the power of the waves. If you stand there longer, you start to notice this, the push of the currents and the way the water is flowing. You notice not only are there sea lions, which there are too many, there are baby sea lions. And they're playing with each other and they're wrestling. You notice there, are, there were dolphins there, including baby dolphins. And then you get in the water and you put your head under the water and you see a kelp forest and you're flying over it like Peter Pan because you're swimming above it and you notice the brightly colored fish swimming in schools. The deeper you go, the more there is to notice. Scripture is simple enough for a child to wade into and deep enough for you to give your whole life to exploring and never touch the bottom. So Renew Church, may we be a people who watch and wait with Scripture so that we might be equipped for every good work in this world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray now that you would give us your wisdom, your perspective, the freedom that can only come from you. You have revealed yourself in your living word, Jesus Christ. You've revealed yourself in your written word through Scripture. And so make us a people of your word in every way. Only you can do that. And all we could do is say we're open to it. And so take these ideas and make them a practice. Take these desires and make them a direction. Take these people and make us more and more one with you and one with, this, with each other for the good of this world. We pray these things in your name. Amen.